let's be professional question askers first. And let's ask people for what they think, because so many times the gap between the leadership executive, you know, what they believe is a problem and what the folks on the front lines believe is a problem, there's such a disparity. From Ray and Associates Studio, this is Unsuitable, a management and financial services podcast for entrepreneurs, tenured business leaders, and others who are ready to look beyond the suit and tie culture for meaningful, measurable results. I'm Doug Hauser. On this weekly podcast, thought leaders and business professionals break down complicated and mundane topics and give you the tips and insight you actually need to grow as a leader while helping your organization to grow and thrive. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss future episodes. And if you want access to even more information, show notes, and exclusive content, please visit our website at www.racecpa.com slash podcast and sign up for updates. These days, company culture is everything, especially with so many businesses competing for top talent. We are hearing that in some instances, a winning company culture is what will ultimately seal the deal when a prospective employee is considering multiple opportunities. So what are you doing to improve your company culture? Culture design strategist Steve Chaparro has helped companies transform their workplace culture through intentional co-creation and communication and regularly speaks on this topic as a keynote speaker. Today, he's going to share his insight with us. Welcome to Unsuitable, Steve. Doug, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. I, I, uh, this topic is near and dear to my heart. We, it's something certainly that we don't think enough about in our uh, daily lives, in our workplace. So tell me a little bit about how you got started, how you got interested in uh, workplace culture and improving culture. It's a path that I think sometimes will beg a question uh, from folks when they understand that I actually started my career in architecture. Uh, I, I went to architecture school and was in the field for about 10 years. And at the last firm that I was at, um, I was a VP of strategic design. And that's where we truly helped our clients tell their cultural story in their space. We called it spatial storytelling. And so we would do a deep dive into who they were as a company, what were their values, how did they express those values, and we looked at their physical environment as one way to either uh, to embody those values, like it's a, it's literally a container for activities to embody those values, or it actually served as a shaping mechanism to actually facilitate. Uh, certain types of interactions that they were trying to espouse. Uh, so it's kind of an aspirational uh, move. What I found there was that there were a lot of companies that actually did not have a good sense of what that cultural narrative was. Sure. Uh, they hadn't had those conversations. And what we started to see when we would facilitate some of those initial conversations to really extract what that story was and extract what were those values we did see tremendous value in holding those conversations. And in fact, in some cases, we felt that that was so necessary to describe the story before we even started shaping the space. And so we would actually, in some cases, suggest to them, 
either one, let us facilitate some of those discussions or work with a consultant that can really help, in a sense, reshape your culture before we can reshape your space. And then I started to have a real passion for uh, for actually focusing on that part of it, of, of shaping or designing the culture. And I, I was very inspired by the words of Winston Churchill, who said, we shape our buildings thereafter they shape us. And so that was on one case, the space side of it. But then I started to attribute it like, what if I inserted a different word for building? We shape our culture thereafter it shapes us. Became a really driving focus for me. And so that's when I decided to take all of those learnings about leadership, about business, and about design to really focusing on helping organizations redesign not just their culture, but also reshape their uh, their uh, their culture um, as well. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. And, and when you think about the connectivity, for example, as you suggested with the physical space, and I think of you know, certainly some companies and, and even industries that, you know, the, the physical space is such a part of their identity and how they, they design that. You see that uh, quite a bit. That's that's an interesting connection. Yeah, I mean, I've worked at companies where uh, there was such a misalignment between what they said that their values were and the type of activities or behaviors or interactions that they they espoused with their team. And then their facilities were so stark. Uh, they were so like, they, they in no way helped to facilitate that. In yeah. fact, it almost looked that it was a way of diminishing that type of thing. And so being that I was so attentive uh, to that alignment, uh, when that misalignment happens, it's, it's, it's so apparent. And I think the younger generations are actually more in tune with that desired alignment Whereas maybe the older generation say, you know what, I've never seen that alignment happen. So I don't expect that there ever to be that connection. Yeah. How does that play into, you know, we've seen this trend over the last 10 or 15 years to the the open workspace mm-hmm. and, and more collaborative and things like that. And, and it seems like in, in recent years, pre-COVID, there, there was a little bit of start to be some pushback on on some of that you know, maybe for either lack of personal space or it was too distracting, things like that. How does all that, those types of things uh, play into that that culture uh, scenario? Yeah, I think one major downfall of just seeing, you know, in, in the conversation about the open plan is when we look at one approach to space as a silver bullet. You know, when we say that the open plan is going to work for every employee, uh, for every department, for every function, I think that we we start we start uh, we were in danger of it just blowing up in our face. And it may work for a while and it's just because of the novelty of it. But when we start to really dig into it and as new generations enter into the workplace with their own expectations, we start to see that there is no silver bullet. Now, I agree that there are some problems with the open plan. And in fact, uh, there is some research that shows that the open plan is not necessarily a 10 or 15 year thing. It's actually went back to, you know, when they started uh, at the beginning of the, the 20th century or the 1930s when they had these sort of administration farms, if you will, this open plan with a lot of typists or clerical uh, folks that would work in this big open space or even the newsrooms of the day. So this open plan is not a new concept. And they actually moved away from it 
you know, at the end of say the the fifties or sixties, yeah. uh, as the modular system started to happen with Herman Miller and things like that. And then we went back to it because the Facebooks and Googles of the world started to espouse it. Now, I think that there is a place for the open plan today. But if it is part of what I call a spatial diversity approach, mm. meaning it is one type of space within a toolkit of spaces that are used in any in, in any given office. And so I think what you really need to do is really identify what type of activity, what type of work, what type of interaction is being done for what type of person. Yep. And then you say, okay, then maybe the open plan is going to work. But yeah. for other folks, it, it may not work. That makes sense. That's a great, great perspective that you provided there uh, overall. But if, you th if we think overall about culture, and obviously you work with a lot of organizations uh, with regards to their culture. And, you know, I, I just think to my own experiences, the different organizations that I've worked for and the, and the clients and prospective clients that I know, almost to a T, they would say, well, yeah, we have, we have a good culture, uh, right? Everybody thinks that. Uh, it's sort of like, yeah, I got a good deal on my car. Nobody's ever going to say they got, got a bad deal. So how do you, where do you start when, when you first, you know, meet a, a company's owner, you know, our, our audience here, obviously, owner-managed businesses. And, and so how do you start with that to help identify, you know, sort of ground zero and, and where do we go from here kind of a thing? Well, I, I think for one of the things to think about is uh, I think many times their organizations will have, in fact, a strong culture already, but it may not be the one they want to have. It may not be a positive one. It could be strong and be bad. And that's actually one of the, the things that I found out is sometimes a strong culture can be a detriment because it's strong in the worst of ways. If you have a top-down hierarchical command and control type of structure, that's a very strong culture. It just it's not going to facilitate health moving forward, at least in the ways that things need to move forward. So I think one of the first things to do is that a company at a leadership level needs to evaluate what is their appetite for change. Because we can do all these other things with surveys, we can have these workshops, we can have all these other things that bring the employees into the process of evaluating the structure. But I think, so I generally like to work, do a session or two with the leaders to really examine what is your appetite for change? Because generally, most of the change doesn't need to happen out there. It needs to happen in, in the boardroom, sure. at, at the yeah. leadership C-suite. And so how much are you willing to change? How much control are you willing to uh, give up to a process? Because I think so many times leaders uh, think that they have to determine what the direction or what the change will be. And for them to place sort of that power into the hands of others is really hard. So I think one, leadership examine, what do we need to work on? What appetite are we willing for change? Are we willing to have? How much trust are we willing to put into the process? Because the process, from the process will emerge the right answers if you're asking good questions. But you have to ask good questions, and even to the point of what is really the challenge here, and not go into predetermined uh, uh, 
you know, insights as to what is really wrong. Because I think when you deal with culture, you almost have to go into it with, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. So you have to be willing to sort of evolve and and let that kind of happen organically as you go through this sort of fact finding process. If if I'm yeah, I mean, I mean, I I use approaches and methodologies from the design world. So I I think of it as the first thing is is framing the problem. Mm. You know, it's like Einstein says, if you give me, I forget what the exact quote was, but if you give me an hour, I'm going to spend 55 minutes determining what is the right problem to solve. Okay. And so in the same vein is let's ask, let's be professional question askers first and let's ask people for what they think, because so many times the gap between the leadership executive, you know, what they believe is a problem and what the folks on the front lines believe is a problem. There's such a disparity. Yeah. And I think if you want to really hire or really enlist a subject matter expert on the cultural challenges of the company. It's not consultants and it's not executives. It's people on the front lines. And if you're willing to listen to them, then it it goes back. I know I've been long-winded, but it goes back to the French physician who was the inventor of the stethoscope. Uh, He was teaching medical students how to use the, the stethoscope. And he said, listen to your patients. They're telling you how to heal them. In the same way with employees, if you want to heal the culture, then you need to listen to your employees because they're telling you how to heal your culture. Interesting. Yeah. And how do you get the employees, though, to sort of open up and be really transparent and honest without fear of reprisal? Say if there's been uh, perhaps an unfortunate event or, or there's a now maybe a, a change in ownership or a change in management and you, you sort of want to start fresh, you know, how do you, how do you get that process to, to happen? But there's been so much talk and written about this idea of psychological safety and is creating an environment in which people feel safe to express their opinions, to push back, to complain, to offer ideas without the fear of some sort of retribution. And so a lot of times people will fear um, speaking up in a candid way because they believe that they might lose some professional capital favor or whatever. So I think the first thing that leaders must model is their own vulnerability, their own willingness to solicit feedback that may be uncomfortable, to express some of their own fears about the process to say, you know what, I'm used to kind of taking things by the horns and and giving answers and giving directions. This process is going to be different because I am trusting the process. And there may be observations, there may be solutions that come up that I, I may be uncomfortable with, but I'm trusting the process. And so just that modeling of vulnerability as as just one example is a way to solicit vulnerability and candid feedback, because I think candid feedback should exist in the conference rooms and not just in the hallways. Yeah, no, that's that's great perspective. So if we get management to sort of if they exhibit that behavior, as you said, you know, and show some transparency and vulnerability and just, you know, say, hey, I don't know. I don't know where this is going to lead us, but we want we want transparency, then that 
hopefully helps everybody open up a bit. Yeah, and some people hearing this might say, "Oh, that that sounds so you know willy nilly. It seems like it's you're you're just like shooting a dart and seeing where it lands." Like, no, I'm saying let's have a pretty clear idea of the direction that we want to head. Like, here's the desired outcome, but how we get there. I'm inviting you to help me shape what that looks like. And yeah. even if that direction is just a direction, it's not a finite destination. Like if we go in this direction, I'm open to where we land. Yeah. But I'm setting a direction. So that's where the leadership and the visionary comes in is to say, let's go in this direction. We're making a decision to go in this direction. This is where we want to be. But what that looks like and how we get there, join me. And I think, you know, it's important to get a cross-section. I know we do this in our firm where we take, you know, certainly executive leadership that's had long experience, some folks that are new to the firm, also some, you know, young folks. Uh, we try to get a cross-section of, of groups and, and we get their opinion on, you know, how, how things are proceeding. What are they feeling? Because, as you said, you can be very vulnerable to, to groupthink and, and those types yeah. of things if you if you don't do so, right? Right. And groupthink is it definitely not not the intention. It's not leadership by or decision making by consensus. Uh, but when you do invite people into the process, even if you don't act on their specific individual feedback, the fact that you're hearing them and involving them, but it also has to you you have to avoid don't patronize me by inviting me and then just completely ignoring what I what I suggested because you already had your mind pretty you know already made up mm. people will sniff that out after a while or even uh, being invited into these discussions and then realizing that nothing is ever done i mean there's definitely a lot of fatigue that i see around that um where it's just a tease you're getting people's hopes up and then not acting on anything how long in your experience steve does it take say, a company to go through a, a really, let's call it a successful transformation of, of their, their culture? From, yeah, from. I, I would say it's going to take at least two or three years, okay. at least two or three years. Uh, you can have a lot of small wins along the way so that you're not waiting for that two or three year mark uh, before you see any results. You're going to see wins along the way. But I think when you think of, of making significant culture change akin to turning a, a big ship, um, sometimes you need to send out little pilot lifeboats out <laughs> ahead uh, to kind of, you know, get some wins and, and be a little bit more agile and, and to lead some of that interaction. So it does take time because a lot of times these uh, these cultural norms uh, are deeply embedded. And who knows, you know, depending on the life cycle of that particular organization, how long it took to get there. You know, yeah. just as they say, when you're experiencing the death of a loved one, you know, the, the amount of grief or time that you spend in grief is going to be directly proportional to the time that you were in a relationship with them. Maybe not year for year, but there's still at least, you know, there's going to be some time. So I think when you're going to do some change, you know, there's a lot of loss that is experienced, even if sure. it's for good reasons. Yeah. Um, and, and allowing sort of that organizational grief to happen and to work through making some of those changes. Uh, yeah. So a long-winded answer to say two or three years. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, you know, we, we always want to build, you know, build connections and, and kind of create this community within within our organization. 
So how do you how do you stay on that kind of path during this you know this really interesting time? Obviously, where we we went virtual and then there's some hybrid, and now we're we're moving back to office and workplace settings, but still with some certainly some differences. Uh, how do you navigate? maintaining that consistent culture through all of all of those changes. Yeah, I mean that definitely has been a conversation and I think uh I think it takes intention, I think it takes imagination in order to to do that and and understanding that you can't necessarily replicate virtually what you can do in person. Uh it, you just have to understand like those those are very different. And so you have to approach those things very different. And when you try to have a silver bullet that addresses both at the same time, it's just it's not gonna work for the most part. That's the easy way. That's I would say that's the lazy way mm-hmm. of of trying to kill two birds with one stone, as they say. Um so I think being intentional about creating one-on-one interactions, allowing space for that. Being intentional about allowing for group sessions, you know, whether it's team sessions and having rituals. And that's that's one word that really comes to mind for me is creating rituals, whether it's a check-in, whether it's a checkout at you know at the beginning and the meetings, whether it's virtual water coolers, whether it's happy hours, whether it's um, bringing people in on a quarterly or monthly basis so that they still do have that in-person. Because I think if you combine the virtual with periodic uh, in-person, if a team can manage that, I think that does wonders. Like I've seen healthy virtual culture that skyrocket in their health when they actually do have those intermittent uh, gatherings together. So I don't think you can always, again, depending on the size of your company, the size of your team, that may or may not be manageable. But I think it's being intentional and being imaginative about what can be. Those are two things. Yeah, that's awesome. What about, you know, one last question I wanted to ask is, we've all been in workplaces where you sort of have this maybe individual that's deemed, uh, I hate to use a cliche, but, you know, kind of uh, cancerous to the culture. As Toxic, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they may be a high performer in many cases, and and that's why they they survived. But in my experience, that person does more damage by, yeah. even though they may be a, a, a supremely high performer, to everybody else's psyche. Is that Has that been your experience? Uh, yeah, that's a very important point that I don't think people realize enough. And I think even the Gallup employee engagement, I think they just came out with their new one for 2021, have said, uh, so I don't know what the number is now, but they, they say that 20% or so of employees are actively disengaged. And another way of saying that is actually toxic, meaning that they're actually working against the culture. And so if you were to remove those people just by virtue of their removal, the culture would become healthier. And so I, 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 uh, I truly do think that if there are toxic people, even if they're high performers, even if they're executives, that you truly have to understand what are the opportunity costs or what are the downsides of having that person there? You know, they're actually doing, de- potentially doing damage 
versus just, you know, some people say, well, they're not as productive or not as helpful. No, they're actually below it. They're in the red. They're actually working yeah. against the, the culture. So I think those are the, the tough conversations that you need to have and ultimately uh, the tough decisions that you need to make. But generally, I, I have just my experience has been is when you choose to rid any sort of toxic element, behavior, person, practice, process, um, in in short term, you might take a step or two back, but in the long run, you're gonna you're gonna propel yourself forward as a culture and as an organization. Yeah, very very well said. Well, Steve, I know we could. I, I would love to talk about this all day, but you've got some additional resources uh, for us too. That uh, for folks that uh, are listening in and, and might want to plug into some some additional resources, can you can you go over? Yeah. Those for well, us? thank you for for the opportunity. So I have uh, a lot of my focus at at an individual leader level is uh, what I call frustrated visionaries, and it's those people who uh, encounter resistance to their vision. And which it basically turns their vision into frustration. And so I have a free five-day audio course that people can sign up for. They'll, they'll receive a daily email with a link to an audio course along with some homework to uh, kind of bring about some self-awareness and think about how they can improve in the areas of culture, communication, and, uh, and co-creation. So they can go to stevechaparro.co forward slash frustrated. And Chaparro is one P and two R's. Excellent. Well, thank you, Steve. And if you want more business tips and insight or to hear previous episodes of Unsuitable, visit our podcast page at www.raycpa.com slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for exclusive content and show notes. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to Unsuitable on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now, including YouTube. I'm Doug Hauser. Join us next week for another unsuitable interview from an industry professional. The views expressed on Unsuitable on Ray Radio are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Ray and Associates. The podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to replace the professional advice you would receive elsewhere. Consult with a trusted advisor about your unique situation so they can expertly guide you to the best solution for your specific circumstance. 